0: This is the finale episode of RV8. I wanted to send some shout-outs to uh, Burgundy McCurdy. You've kind of changed things on how I see the world and how I see myself in this business. I I appreciate you more than words can say, and I do want to give a last shout-out to Amanda Torjani, knee Caraway. We've been in the trenches for a very long time, Amanda, and uh, if you do bother to listen to these episodes, I need you to know that I don't appreciate you verbally as much as I should, and that I love you very much. Um, My name is Eli. Thank you all for listening up until this point. Let's get started. So, I want to say that if you've reached this episode and you've been through the rest of these episodes, God bless you and thank you. We are now in the month of March, officially, and restaurants have been approved for outdoor dining. It's really chilly winds out here, but at this point, I'm just happy to be taking baby steps in the right direction. Texas and Mississippi have not only opened up, but I believe they've lifted their mask mandates, which honestly sounds kind of fucking wild, even still. And uh, New York has officially opened up movie theaters. So congratulations to y'all. I mean, it's taken quite some time now if you've been listening, but optimism is on the horizon. The light is at the end of the tunnel, say. All the talk of being shot up with this vaccine by June, I might just go to the gym and then hit a movie right after that without showering, just for the fuck, of it. you know what I mean? I might just run into a diner, order a full pie, eat that shit with my hands for no goddamn reason. I'll be wearing a mask throughout everything I'm doing. I'm just saying I'm gonna take some liberties that I couldn't take before. Because, you know, of course I will. Anywho, before I get into everything, I wanna start off with a bit of a forward. Uh, It's only appropriate that we end with things you know with a top five of the decade yes it's very late and yes there's been a whole year separating the last decade from what we're currently talking about but it's only appropriate to celebrate something because 2020 was not worthy of celebration at all cinematically or at least i don't think it was i mean the the dissection of 2020 is probably where i could go next but who knows One thing I've decided is that I'm not going to do any worst ofs of this decade. And I know when people start doing things like podcasts about things like films, they tend to just really step into their worst of lists with a kind of zeal and vigor. And uh, believe me, I was very, very tempted to do the same thing. However, one must remember that in order to do a truly impassioned firing off on the worst of any decade, of any subject, it does kind of require one to go and relive these things and do more research on these things that one truly despises, which is really not the, it's not the healthiest of mental exercises to partake in during a time as stressful as 2020, you know what I mean? There's a lot, and I mean a lot of YouTube videos And Reddit threads that go into painstaking detail about the true cinematic trash of this decade. And you know what? Bless those people. I don't have the mental strength to bring this to this podcast in any way. I'm shooting for positivity in every way, shape, and form. I do love this last decade of film. And I want to celebrate it and not really run it into the ground. So I just want to say that ahead of time. Okay. Now, also before I get into the top five, I feel that it's only right to give honor to the films that didn't make the cut. This is about the number twos, the runners-up, the Damarinos. While some people reached the peak, others thought, you know what? This is high enough. You remember that song, We Are the Champions? Well, this is the B-side. I call it Honorable Mention. The Master, 2012. You know, it's impossible to hate Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, film snobs do a very good job at making him dislikable, simply by hype. Personally, I know two or three people who are absolutely fucking obsessed with his resume and are real assholes about it. Like, the name, to me, is a trigger word. And I get into defense mode because usually when that man's name is like said out loud too many times, there's gonna be a film snob swooping down upon you like Bruce fucking Wayne, waiting to yap you half to death about how great he is. But he is a fucking genius. And uh, it seems as if when discussing his resume, even the most ardent of film snobs tend to forget the master. Hell, when I think about this film, I tend to forget that it was released in the last decade. I forget how pleasant of a film going experience it was going to like a place like Artlight, watching it in 70 millimeter and how spectacular Philip Seymour Hoffman really was and how him and Joaquin Phoenix were really great in every scene that they were in. Oh, this isn't a discussion, it's a grilling. There's nothing I can do for you. If your mind has been made up, you seem to know the answers to your questions. Why do you ask? I'm sorry, you're unwilling to defend your beliefs in any kind of rational... Belief. Oh, if, 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 you, if you if you already know the answers to your questions, then why ask, pig fuck? Ford versus Ferrari, 2019. Let me just say, this has been an unbelievably shitty decade for sports films. The one category where I can say the 2000s absolutely obliterates the 2010s is in sports films. It took me a long time to research just the amount of high quality sports films that were released in the last decade. And man, oh man, between the major sports followed by with Americans at least, every single solitary major sport had something mediocre to very, very bad. There were truly no spectacular football movies to speak of. Aside from Moneyball, there really wasn't a lot of great baseball films. There's no hockey movies. Even though people want to continue to tell me that those goon movies are classics, which they are not. And basketball movies were on such a decline that I've really tried to hear people convince me that Uncut Gyms is a sports movie. Fuck out of here. Of all the sports to consistently get it right this decade, there were three. Tennis, boxing, and Formula One racing. He ain't lying. There were two very, very great racing movies this decade. One was called Rush with Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Bruhl, about the personal rivalry between Nikki Lauda and James Hunt back in the day. And then there was Ford versus fucking Ferrari. Star studded, summer flick, about a sport that very few Americans. I know even remotely care about set during a time that you don't hear a lot about, you know, in sports networks like ESPN or Fox. It's one of the handful of movies I can say, with all honesty, wildly, wildly outperforms the trailer that advertises it. To see those racing scenes put on an IMAX screen was truly special. And to any of you who may have missed out on it, you know, because you didn't want to take the time to go and see a racing movie i understand people don't want to spend their money and take chances but all i can say is that i understand your decision and given the quality of this movie boy do i feel sorry for you for not experiencing it like i did there was wonder woman for 2017. hey you remember a while back when i told you how excited i was to see 1984 wonder woman 1984. Remember a while back when I thought that it was going to be a good cap off to the shittiest year of film on record in 2020? You remember a while back, a couple of episodes ago, when I when I mentioned all the silly-ass hot takes that I used to have? That thing about Daniel Craig not being a good choice for Bond that I said a long time ago? That thing about Brandon Ruth being the best choice for Superman? Like Stuff like that, right? Silly-ass predictions like that? Well... Predicting that Wonder Woman 1984 was gonna be a good movie is playing out to be on that level of ridiculousness. He ain't lying. Save you the review, but I'll tell you, fucking horrendous. That made me appreciate the first movie all the more. Listen, Gal Gadot is not Meryl Streep. We all know this, right? But she is undoubtedly the MVP of the DC Extended Universe. And as an origin stories for superheroes this is about as good as it can get the movie was so good godot playing this role is so good the chemistry that she has with chris pine in both of the movies actually is so good but i think a lot of the people like myself didn't realize it at the time sometimes it takes an ultra shitty sequel to understand the superiority of the original there was Hereditary 2018. As previously mentioned with Wonder Woman, sometimes it takes an extraordinarily shitty follow up to understand the greatness of something that came before. And although Midsummer, the horror film Midsummer, isn't a sequel in any way to Hereditary, it is the sophomore effort of a man called Ari Aster, a director called Ari Aster a man who's either a complete hack or an absolute genius. I have no idea which. And that's what happens when your sophomore effort is so ridiculously, pretentiously art house. So focused with every shot being idyllic rather than the story itself making sense. So focused on shock value and not enough on say pacing or character development that it makes your extraordinary freshman effort looked like an absolute accident and hey maybe it was i mean perhaps maybe all the credit to hereditary being as great as it is should go to tony collette and gabriel byrne and the rest of that awesome cast maybe audiences were so indoctrinated to shitty ass slasher films that it was refreshing to see something like hereditary come out in the summertime there's a lot of questions about ari aster His next feature will be very, very interesting. I want to give a shout-out to all the Spielberg movies from 2011 to 2018. Fun fact, no less than seven, seven Steven Spielberg movies have been released this decade. The BFG. Good. The Adventures of Tintin. Good. Bridge of Spies. Wonderful. Lincoln. Wonderful. Ready Player One. Great. The Post. Wonderful and a borderline low-key masterpiece called War Horse. All of them have gone under the radar, and if he were any other director, we'd be calling him a superstar. But you know what? Spielberg movies at this point are like a Mercedes-Benz, right? They're fancy, they're extremely well-made, and they're a lot better than the vast majority of the field that they're in. However, like a Mercedes-Benz, the quality of the product has been excellent for so fucking long that we as an audience have become complacent. So complacent, in fact, that when we heard that Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks were gonna be in a period piece directed by Steven Spielberg in Oscar season, I think the collective response was like, eh, I mean, Spielberg's been great for so long that a movie like Spotlight can win Best Picture in 2015, but The Post was honestly better. Yep. Movies like How to Train Your Dragon 2, and The Croods, and The Boss Baby, and Ralph Breaks the Internet are all nominated for that Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards. And a movie like Rango actually wins the Oscar for Best Feature, Animated Feature, but the BFG and Tintin don't even merit nominations? What if I told you that Steven Spielberg films over this seven year span merited 27 Oscar nominations, including five for him both as a director and a producer? It just doesn't mean a lot to people because we've seen such heights of greatness from him. There was a movie called Sing Street in 2016. For what it's worth, I do believe Sing Street is my personal favorite movie musical of the entire decade. A true sentimental pick for me personally, and I understand how ridiculous of a statement that may sound given how many Disney features feature power ballads and considering that, you know, Hamilton was re-released as a motion picture, kinda. There've actually been way more star-studded, high glossy type musicals released this decade than people care to realize. There's uh, La La Land, Les Miserables, there was Into the Woods, there was The Greatest Showman, there was Annie, there was Rocket Man, there's Bohemian Rhapsody, there's Rock of Ages, and you know, of course there's a Star is Born, right? And though quite a few of those movies might be technically better than Sing Street is, at some point between movies like these and these fucking disney musicals you just kind of forget what a movie musical can look like without all of the goddamn gloss attached to them there are no superstars in sing street there are no pop power ballads in sing street i mean you know there are no ballads being remade for the sake of the movie there's no fancy shots there uh uh, for the most part there's more comedy than there is drama, but the more I think of it, the more I tend to believe that all you really need to make a solid movie musical are good songs and characters that you can root for, and maybe, you know, maybe you pull off a good underdog coming-of-age story. And this movie just so happens to be a 1980s period piece which only adds to the positives of the song selection of this film. Very entertaining and a very pleasant surprise. This is your life, you can't be anything You gotta learn the rock and roll it You gotta put the pedal down And drive it like you stole it There's Fast Five in 2011 I'm gonna tell you a quick story Back in the days of me working for RV8 I received a paycheck for $400 for two weeks of service it was a slow period, right? Our evil cross-city rival East Valley 13 Cinemas had taken all the new releases that had been released for like two, three weeks up until that point, And hours were really spread thin. I took my paycheck and I went up to the Muckleshoot Casino in a distant land of Auburn, Washington. I walked up to a roulette table with my money in my hand and put 300 of my $400 down on red. And I watched that ball spin around for what seemed like hours and dreadfully thought in that moment of how I'd try and live off of $100 for two weeks and how I'd explain to my grandmother who I was living with at the time that I lost most of my check gambling. Crossed my fingers, all eight of them. And then the ball landed on red and my 300 turned to 600 and I left. I left it on red for it to hit red again one more time. And I walked out of that casino with $1,300. I later marveled at how large my testicles had grown during that experience. Victory! I tell that story. My roulette experience is very similar to what Universal Studios did with that fast franchise in the year 2011. They spent an entire decade building up a franchise that was based on street racing. But at that point, everybody knew it was getting stale. Fourth entry of the franchise, made money, it did. But it just kind of seemed as if it was at its peak. Part five had to be a muckleshoot casino type gamble, which they took, as I did. And as a result, they turned this street racing franchise into an international espionage tale of street racers turned spies. Like they decided to make things even more macho. Yep. Even more cartoonish. Yep. They were also very, like, cavalier with the concepts of gravity. Yep. Physics. Yep. They were extremely gratuitous with things like baby oil and sweat. Yep. 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 That's very notable, man. I mean, like, really, though. Like, The Rock is shiny like a motherfucker in this movie. Like, where is it that they can actually get a shot of this man where he doesn't look like he's been sprayed down with a fucking fire hose or like dipped in a tub of baby oil? Like I've seen chicken wings from Popeyes glistening with less grease than The Rock is in every single one of these fucking movies. I've seen NBA players at a free throw line sweating less in this movie than The Rock at any particular point in time. It's facts! It's facts! It's not facts, it's not facts. It's, facts. Oh, yeah, it's, to it. it's facts. it took balls to do this, is what I'm trying to say. It took balls to take this franchise and to do this to it. And because this franchise has grown to be so substantially larger than what it used to be, it's not really acknowledged all that often. The bravery of this decision. And it should be acknowledged. That's all I'm saying. <coughs> there was Brave in 2012. Given the type of media advertising that can be behind the average Disney film about to be released, it's amazing that 2012 came and went and people have utterly forgotten about the existence of Brave. The last time I went to Disneyland, I didn't see a lot of merchandise. Featuring Brave. There were no pop songs keeping the conversation of Brave relevant past its theatrical run. There are no video games heavily featuring anything involving this film, as there have been other Disney films with female leads like Tangled and Frozen, for example. And there wasn't some big megastar voice in the character of Myrda. Shout out to Kelly McDonald, by the way, who's a fine choice and a wonderful actress, by the way. Myrda, the princess of Bunbrock is the first Disney princess to be made by Pixar. And you would think that that would be a big colossal deal that'd be talked about over time, but no. Shit is weird, because Brave is, you know, the highest grossing animated film of 2012. It won that Golden Globe, and it won that Oscar too. And I have to hear about, let's just say, inferior female-driven Pixar films with multiple power ballads as definitive animated movies of the time. What gives? I have no answers and I have no theories as to why this is, but it's a real shame. In terms of the historical relevance that it's had over the past nine years, I would say it's in that attic when it comes to Disney films, you know what I mean? It's right there with like Oliver and company, and the brave little toaster, which was really dope, by the way, it's right there with the the Hunchback, Notre Dame, the Brother Bear, and, and Bugs Life, and Atlantis, and James and the Giant Peach. Those movies, it's right there with those somehow. I don't know. Somewhere there's a podcast that goes into a deep dive of all these Disney movies that we as a society have neglected, and I don't I. You know, I can only imagine Brave being in one of those episodes somewhere. And if there isn't a podcast like that, like, we should probably get one together and, like, conversate. Give a shout-out to documentaries. All documentaries. God damn it allow me to get on my soapbox really quick if y'all don't mind the quiet shame that plagues cinema these days is the complete lack of acknowledgement of all the great great documentaries out there it's a shame that they pretty much all go under the radar no matter how good they are no matter how pertinent the subject matter no matter what's or who's behind it giving it the money for it to be made in the first place, unless that place is HBO or Netflix. It is of no surprise to me that the truly elite documentaries this decade were seen on streaming services and paid channels. And I know that there's a slippery slope in including films that are never released in actual theaters, you know, being mentioned on a podcast like this, which is supposed to specifically talk about cinema, but it should be noted, That it is an absolute shame that we may be coming upon a generation that sees documentaries as like second-rate filmmaking the commercial and studio support for documentaries in general has dwindled to such an extent that small independent cinemas that used to show them at length especially during the oscar season you know really haven't been able to do that and make money for a really long time like well before the pandemic in fact And it's also a shame that the documentarians that go through years of research and filming to bring these things to life don't become stars within themselves. It's bizarre to me, to me, that the best documentary feature is still a category at the Academy Awards and not the Emmys. How's that work? They're all on TV. None of them are in cinemas. Go figure. There's the Raid Redemption and the Raid Redemption 2, Berendal, I hope I'm saying that right, B-E-R-E-N-D-A-L, Berendal, Berendal, maybe? I don't know. But the Raid 2 is what we call it here in America. That was released in 2014. I am gonna mention both of these at the same time. I think it's apropos to point out that if you haven't caught on already, things that I feel that are the best of this decade, the best, are different from what my favorite things are from this decade. And I'm sorry if I'm mixing them up too much at this particular point. I also feel it's apropos to tell you that technically speaking, technically speaking, right? The best foreign language films of this decade are as follows. A Separation from Iran. Great! Parasite from South Korea. Great! There's a Danish film called The Hunt. Wonderful! There's of course, Roma from Mexico. Wonderful! And the Amaldavar films from Spain, *The Skin I Live In* and *Pain and Glory*. Great! I'm a fanboy of Amaldavar. I'm a bit biased in that aspect. Those are the best, but those are not my faves. And I know it may be a bit strange to say this, but *The Raid* and *The Raid 2* are my absolute favorite two foreign language films of this entire decade for very, very unorthodox reasons. Sure sure the story of the raid redemption is ridiculously simplistic cops got to get to the top of a building to get a crime boss who's hiding there and he sends all of his goons to the adjacent beneath floors of the building to take out the cops that's the whole plot i mean it could be a video game subplot for all you know and the raid 2 is the total opposite of that right there's way too many things going on the characters aren't really fleshed out or anything they are There's a cop movie, and there's a mafia movie, and there's hoodlum movies. There's tropes in all types of ways in hoodlum. I mean, in in hoodlum, (laughs) in the raid too, right? All types of tropes. But, but, and I can't emphasize this enough, when it comes to plot, pacing, and even character development, when it comes to these raid movies, it doesn't fucking matter. Not at all. Why? Because when it comes to hand-to-hand combat sequences, whew, there is nothing, and I mean absolutely goddamn nothing, in the history of this medium that can compare to what these two movies have to offer. Nothing in a Bruce Lee movie. No. Nothing in a Jackie Chan movie. No. Nothing in a John Woo movie from back in the day. No. Nothing in any of the movies that any member of the Wu-Tang Clan has ever idolized can equal what we see on screen In these two movies before or since they are expertly shot the action is kinetic and easy to follow it's gory without being excessive and each one of them have a wild concept to them all the while being important to the plot and they're just not there for window dressing down here in southern california audiences tend to be pretty jaded and i know i've mentioned enough on this podcast whenever an audience erupts in applause or has like an audible moment in watching a film. It's very important to me to point out when this happens, every time. And when it comes to these two films, quite literally after every action sequence, when I saw this at Century City or Arclight or TCL, it didn't matter where I was, there were bursts of applause for every time an action sequence was presented. What John Wick does to shootouts The Raid and The Raid 2 due to fists and feet. I cannot recommend these movies enough. And finally, these honorable mentions, I feel that there should be an open acknowledgement of the one performer that had by far the best body of work of the entire decade. A performer that had a collection of commercial and or critical grand slams, that were so profound considering the previous work of this performer that it was dubbed and nicknamed and written about almost mythologically by numerous major publications. And that man's name is Matthew fucking McConaughey. To put in scope how well he did this decade, I would like to point out that in 2016, he had an underrated film called Gold, which I liked. He did voice acting work in two animated films. One was moderately good, that was called Sing. And there was one that was very excellent called Kubo and the Two Strings. He was also in the Guy Ritchie movie in 2019 that I love dearly called The Gentleman. Actually, that was in 2020. That was actually something good that happened last year. Anywho, those are solid entries into his resume over the past 10 years. Nothing special, but nothing horrible, right? Those films that I've just mentioned are sprinkles on the massive ice cream sundae that has long since been dubbed the McConaissance. The McConaissance term references the period of time between the spring of 2011 until the autumn of 2014, in which he made the following films, okay? The Lincoln Lawyer, which was his most critically, you know, his biggest performance since A Time to Kill back in 95. There was Killer Joe, which won him a Saturn Award and got him nominated for an Indie Spirit Award, the first time that ever happened. A highly underrated film called Bernie, which mostly got Jack Black nominated for a whole bunch of stuff, but was still really, really good. There was Magic Mike, which, believe it or not, landed on quite a few top 10 lists at the end of 2012 for many critics, as did the film that I believe was the best film of 2012, not named Django Unchained or The Master, called Mud. Great. He co-starred in the best film of 2013, and one of the very best films of the entire decade called The Wolf of Wall Street, Great. for which he played a very memorable, but small and impactful role. Mm. Mm. M Come on With a common denominator He of course hit another Grand Slam in the same year of 2013 not only starring in the best movie of that year, but winning the Academy Award for Best Actor for Dallas Buyers Club. Wonderful. The following year, he did a Christopher Nolan movie called Interstellar. Wonderful. Which ended up becoming one of the top 10 highest grossing films of 2014. Oh, and for the record, he also decided to take his shot at television and came out with the iconic first season of a little miniseries called True Detective. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Hmm. That sounds god-fucking-awful, Rush. This stretch of time was so epic for McConaughey that I've often said that had he started acting in 2011 and retired by the end of 2014, he would be beyond revered. He would be the John Cazale of this generation. He would in fact have a mythic status that would eclipse many of his peers. Okay, so in thinking of how I was going to creatively construct my rollout with the actual top five films, I went over what must have been uh, a list that I had. It was like 20, 30 different ideas. It seemed kind of anticlimactic just to name off a list of films for the final episode or the season finale or whatever this tends to be. I still don't know, honestly. So instead of ranking them boringly and inciting controversy with whoever listens to this, I will simply refer to something called the Mount Rushmore List. For those of you who don't know, in February of 2014... There was a basketball player by the name of LeBron James who was asked who he thought was the greatest players of NBA history were. But because he didn't want to piss off anybody, he made something called his quote-unquote Mount Rushmore list. He didn't even do a top five. He did a top four, and he didn't even rank them. And you know what? Because I don't want to piss anybody off, that's what I'm going to do too. If you are one who has listened to every single episode up until this point, I've pretty much told you guys what I felt the top five films of this decade were. I just didn't really put them in a list yet, right? I've already talked at length about Black Panther, about the historical relevancy, about the loss that we all still feel over Chadwick Boseman, about how it's a career-defining performance for Michael B. Jordan, about the iconography and how dope it made Black look and the pride that I personally felt walking out of that theater when I saw it. I told you about that. That being said, right, there's a minor complaint with Killmonger's last line I got to talk about right now. It's just really quick, really quick, right? So he has this last line about wanting to be buried with his ancestors, uh, even though that he was forcing an African country to go to war with the rest of the world because he wanted to be the ruler of all things with the strongest army and strongest weapons, even though he you know, burned at least some of the ancestral history of Wakanda to keep that power of the heart-shaped herb. Do you remember that? I do. Uh, But I digress. You simply can't make a cinematic Rushmore of the 2010s without having Black Panther on there. Complaint or no complaint? I've already talked about the social network, right? on how the greatest screenwriter in the world combined with one of the four or five best directors in the world, and that combined with the best cinematic score of any movie of the past 20 years, and how that movie had career best performances from Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, Justin Timberlake, and Armie Hammer, and how it was just this really epic film about the creation uh, of a website. Audiences young and old, knew that when that film came out, that it was something special, and that something was going to speak to them. Something was relevant. And here we are, shit, 11 years later, and that is still the case. It hasn't lost relevancy at all. I've already talked about Toy Story 3, right? One of the greatest dramas to come out of the 2010s, the near Shakespearean tale about the loss of childhood innocence, about the inducing of insanity because of loneliness, a film that honest to God gives you its own three versions of heaven, which is Andy Room when he's young, Purgatory, the daycare that's ran by Lotso, and yes, it gives you its own version of hell in that incinerator scene. It's a movie that induced more adult human beings weeping openly in a movie theater than any non-animated film released in the 2010s, any of them. And I understand that just mentioning all of the Shakespearean tragedy in that children's cartoon, like I'm criticizing it for being too heavy, but I'm not. Like I recently watched that movie and you know what? I'll go and say it. It's probably the 1B to the Lion King's 1A as far as the greatest Disney movie ever released. Fight me, you film snobs. Fight me. I've talked about The Wolf of Wall Street, even recently. About how it's the bronze medal on the catalog of one Martin Charles Scorsese. About how it's the best career performance of one Leonardo Willem DiCaprio. Yes, I looked up their middle names. So what? Wikipedia's here for stuff like that. I talked about how it brilliantly fuses comedy and drama unlike any other film of this era and played a major part of the earlier mentioned McConaissance. This thing got nominated for five Oscars and won nothing. And it's just one of those films that we're going to look back on and say, how the fuck did we let that happen? And there it is. That's the cinematic Mount Rushmore of the 2010s in my humble opinion. Black Panther, Social Network, Toy Story 3, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Those films, all at once, are culturally relevant, technically superior, and they define this era inarguably. Those are the best films. But, as I mentioned before in this podcast, there is a difference between the best and your favorite. And not to say that I'm not absolutely positively in love of with every single film in the Mount Rushmore, because I am, and I can honestly say that every film on that Mount Rushmore might be better than what my personal favorite film of the decade is. But that's the thing with your favorites, right? They mean something to you sentimentally. They hold a place in your heart. Technicalities and cultural relevance be damned. When you watch as many movies as I do, coming up with your absolute sentimental favorite is an arduous fucking task. Like you, you, you write down a lengthy list of films, right? Then you cross off some names and you give it a day or two, then you come back to the names and you cross off more names. Your brain is like a pinball. And then sometimes, you know, you rewrite the list again and repeat the process and then serendipitously, you arrive at a name and you look at it and you slowly begin to nod to yourself and everything makes sense. My favorite film of the decade is a film that went against the grain of its genre, has a stylistic look unto itself that the rest of the field wouldn't even dare to try or at least nothing amongst big budget films that you can compare it to. My favorite film is by far the greatest coming-of-age story of the 2010s and that's not even close my favorite film is one that celebrated diversity in many different forms all of which made complete and utter sense and it was never once seen as controversial the main character is biracial and that is not shied away from in any possible way my favorite film has the best soundtrack of any movie released in this decade not cinematic score, but soundtrack, including a song that stayed in the top five of the Billboard 100 for five months as a side note. My favorite film took a very, very beloved franchise and remixed it for a brand new audience and a brand new generation, and it was widely accepted and embraced. And even though it's technically speaking, the lowest grossing entry of its own franchise, it was wildly profitable considering how much it cost my favorite film is one of the handful of movies this decade that I wish I saw with my friends back home from RV8. I know it's been some time since I've seen a lot of the people that I've given shout outs to at the beginning of these episodes that have worked with me in that building but I still know where their tastes lie when it comes to cinema and I know that my favorite film is all all encompassing in that they would appreciate how it overachieved and how it made them feel my favorite film is a movie that we would be talking about in front of that building for an hour or two after it was over after we shut the building down for the night drinking beers or pepsis as we often did with movies that overachieved my favorite film of this decade Like, Toy Story 3 is also an animated film. My favorite film of the 2010s is a movie called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I don't know. This movie's a work of art, man. Maybe I'll just run out the clock on this one by pushing random buttons in my booth. I recall some time ago when Bong Joon-ho... The director of Parasite won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film. His acceptance speech became somewhat famous because he pointed out that the hesitation that American audiences have for foreign language films is a one-inch barrier of subtitles, separating an American audience from so many more quality things that they would otherwise enjoy. And that very, very much also applies to animated film. It's not a one inch barrier give you that but hey times have changed times have evolved i mentioned toy story 3 and how many adult people were weeping because it spoke to them just because a movie has animation doesn't mean it's simply meant for your children just because it has animation doesn't mean it can't speak to you in the same way it did for those poor individuals that Experience Toy Story 3 for the first time. Black and white films, animated films, CGI films, things like 60 millimeter film and 70 millimeter film, all of these are a part of the art of cinema, right? And though I can't expect everybody to be inclusive of every type of thing that this art form has to present, I do wanna take the time out to anybody who's listening to this right now that balks at the idea that an animated film can be the best movie of the decade how about you just give it a try maybe you don't see spider-man into the spider-verse as highly as i do but that won't be because of the animation it'll be because you have no soul i'm just kidding i'm just kidding you have a soul you listener you but really try spider-verse man it's really really good And that about does it. That covers the whole decade. I don't really know how many episodes we're into right now, but in all honesty, uh, at this moment in time, I don't really know where else I would go with this. This has been a very experimental thing for me, and I'm very uh, proud of the things that we've accomplished so far here. Um, I do want to give respect to third wheel podcast studio in Los Angeles off Wilshire. They've been completely integral integral. Is that how you say it integral? Either way way it works. works. They've been important in helping this evolve to what you hear right now. And um, I want to thank everybody who's supported me so far. These, these episodes have had a positive response and, This is not what I do normally. Um, I want to thank my mom one more time. And just, uh, you know, being the type of mom that cradles her son in everything that she does. Even though she has no chance of listening to this, I want to say that I love you. In case you do find time to get through the 14 some odd episodes that we've recorded so far. This will be back. I keep saying it's a series finale or a season finale. I don't know what it is, but I really like this experience. So we'll find a way to do it again. Thank you all for listening. And I'll see you again.